Amen. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, I would ask that you would turn to the book of Jeremiah. Scripture for our message this morning is from Jeremiah chapter 2. We'll be reading the first 13 verses. As you're finding that, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Hear now the very Word of God. The Word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness to become and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of desert and, deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made, it a, made my heritage an abomination. The Lord did not say, the priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if, there's, see if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Lord God, this recounting of Israel's disobedience and unfaithfulness is jarring, and yet it is near to us as well. We ask that as we examine this passage that you would indeed provoke our own hearts to greater devotion to you as we take the warning that is given here. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are a number of pretty silly debates that sports fans engage in. And one of the ones that they occasionally engage in is what is the worst, most lopsided trade ever made? That's a debate that's actually been reignited recently with the, tra the trade of Trey Lance from the San Francisco 49ers, that's a quarterback in case you didn't know, to the Dallas Cowboys. 
after San Francisco had spent three first-round draft picks to acquire him just two years ago. It was definitely a bad trade in, the, in, light, in present light, not perhaps as bad as Babe Ruth to the Yankees or Nolan Ryan for Jim Fregosi, but still bad. But all of those sorts of debates, like it, they involve sports. And though sports often command our attention, perhaps somewhat disproportionately, none, nothing about them is ultimately of great temporal significance, let alone eternal significance. In contrast, our passage deals with a trade of tremendous eternal significance against which all those other trades pale in comparison. For our passage details Israel's exchange of the one true God for the false gods of the nations surrounding them. The worst trade in human history and one that they made continually for literally centuries. We're going to take a look at the case that Jeremiah lays out here against Israel. First, we're going to examine the infancy of Israel's relationship with the Lord, and then the infamy of Israel's infidelity. And finally, we're going to consider for a moment what sort of trades we're making. First, though, I just want to take a couple of moments and consider the call and ministry of Jeremiah, which I have always found somewhat fascinating. Because Jeremiah is distinct from most other prophets. Unlike the call for most prophets, with the exception maybe of Ezekiel, uh, Jeremiah is actually going to have to live through the terrible things that he is prophesying about. And you can contrast that to, say, Isaiah, who in chapter 39 prophesies the conquest of Jerusalem by Babylon to Hezekiah, but he makes it clear that that's not going to happen in Hezekiah's lifetime, nor in Isaiah's, but rather in the lifetime of Hezekiah's children. Jeremiah, like most of the prophets, I might add, is disbelieved in his time by the majority of Judah, and he's asked to personally represent the coming doom in dramatic fashion, such as being called to wear a yoke in chapter 27 to represent the two generations who will live under the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And here in chapter 2, we find Jeremiah just after his call to office has been issued in chapter 1. And he, like Moses, resisted that call, saying that he was only a youth and he doesn't know how to speak. In our passage, he's laying out the beginning of God's indictment against Judah, which itself will carry on all the way into chapter 6. And as always, Jeremiah obediently transmits these words of judgment and pending disaster faithfully, even though he will be caught up in the disaster that's going to sweep through Jerusalem. And he begins his talk these words of God, by looking back at the infancy of Israel's relationship with the Lord. God's word to Israel through Jeremiah begins, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness. Now, such an opening statement reflects a couple of things. 
First of all, it reflects the patience of the Lord towards Israel. Because the wandering through the wilderness included two of the most notorious incidents of Israel's disobedience. The golden calf in Exodus 32 and the faithlessness of the spies of the land in Numbers 13 and 14, which we talked about during our reading of the law. And we'll touch on both of these a little bit later. But it reflects not just God's patience, but also how bad Israel has truly become. If a chapter in their history that includes those two incidents is remembered fondly, How bad are they now in Jeremiah's day? God recounts how he protected Israel during those days, calling Israel his first fruits and saying that anyone who would seek to devour Israel would have disaster come upon them. The land into which he delivered them was far from a land of drought, darkness, and pits like the wilderness, but rather a land of plenty, which they were free to enjoy in peace just so long as they remained faithful to the Lord. Such a time was probably epitomized by Joshua's final address, where he charges Israel, Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And later it was revived under David and especially Solomon, which was a time of unparalleled wealth and peace in Israel. But Jeremiah can't get very far into such a retrospective of Israel's youth without starting to get into the charges that are going to be leveled at the infamy of Israel's infidelity. Because on the heels of a call call to hear what the Lord has to say, charges begin against them in verse 5 where the first imagery of this trade that Israel has made comes forth. Here their fathers are said, even in the midst of plenty and peace, to have gone far from the Lord and pursued worthlessness and became worthless. And here we see a glimpse into the ironic dynamic of idolatry. As Israel pursued idols, they became like them like the idols who were deaf and blind creations of humans, Israel became slowly spiritually deaf and blind as they pursued these false foreign gods. The good land which God gave them was itself defiled by this pursuit. God says his heritage was spoiled and famine and foreign invasion became regular occurrences. Those charged with Israel's spiritual well-being are at the heart of the problem. Those who should know the law of the Lord don't know the Lord themselves. The shepherds have transgressed against the Lord, and the prophets prophesied by Baal, which continued in Jeremiah's day. All the other alleged prophets would strike Jeremiah and even seek to kill him for faithfully carrying out the message that God had given him. Nobody could recognize the true word of the Lord. So blind and deaf had they become. 
In an emphasis of the charge pursuing worthlessness and becoming worthless, God says that all of this was a pursuit of things which do not profit. The consequence of all this is, instead of protecting Israel, God will now contend with both Israel and their children. In justifying his contention, God tells Israel to look from Cyprus, which is an island to their west in the Mediterranean, to Kedar, which would have have represented the Far East Israel, and see if there has ever been something like this before, that a nation has changed its gods. In other words, you could search the whole world over And you'll never find a nation abandoning its gods, even though those gods were mere human handiwork. What God is saying is that Israel has has committed an act of infidelity that is unknown even to the pagan nations around them. Even though their gods would place harsh conditions on them, like burning their own children in sacrifice, even though their gods were often defeated by the one true God in battle, like when he wiped out the entire Assyrian army at the gates of Jerusalem. Those nations remained steadfastly committed to their gods. So Israel hasn't simply violated God's commandments. They've failed to live up to the standards of the world around them. Much like Paul's charge against the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5, where he says, it's reported that there is sin among you and sin of such a nature that even the pagans won't get involved in it. That's how brazenly Israel has sinned against God in abandoning him. And the substance of this horrible trade is summed up by God saying that Israel has committed two evils. The first is that they have exchanged their glory for that which does not profit. It's the second time that God characterizes them as, characterizes their return as something which does not profit. It is God himself who was their glory, who provided for their prosperity and defense, whom they traded for nothing other than his anger. Secondly, they are said to have exchanged the fountain of living waters for a cistern of their own creation that can't even hold water. And I would say that the immense gulf between those two things is probably at least partially lost on us. In an arid land, the importance of water simply can't be overstated. And I would say that we don't fully understand that because most of us have never truly known real thirst. Years ago, Wendy and I went to Las Vegas in July, which I will confess was my idea. The afternoon highs at that time were bumping up against 110. And after walking around in it for just a short period of time, I have never felt such urgency in my life to get water feeling like I would pass out if I didn't find it. Fortunately for me, there was a Walgreens right there that was willing to sell it to me. Not the case 
in an arid land, however. But that's a small window into what the daily struggle from wandering in the wilderness to Jeremiah's day would have been like. Water was life itself. Finding a source of it was an absolute imperative. Land without water was utterly worthless. And under most circumstances in such a land, you'd be happy to have a well from which to draw water. And cisterns would be constructed, these big sort of bowl-like pits to, to capture and store rainfall for future consumption. Now, if by some chance you had a spring that brought water all the way to the surface, well, you had something precious indeed. God is presented as something even beyond even that, as a fountain of living water. And again, you've heard that term before. It shows that Jesus was making an implicit claim to deity in John 4 when he claimed to have such water to offer the woman at the well. And if somebody in that day had found a fountain of living water, they would have something of infinite value. And yet Israel is said to have exchanged such a fountain for a broken cistern that wasn't even capable of holding whatever water might have fallen into it. It is, without a doubt, the worst trade in human history. And God is exacting judgment on those who have made it. And as inexplicable and unpronounceable, apparently, as this may seem, it does raise a question for us. And that is, what sort of trades have we been making? It's a relevant question because Israel's infidelity should always serve as a warning to us. It's like a spiritual family history. If your father and your grandfather both died early of heart disease, your doctor would look at your physical condition in a different light, would he not? Well, this is a different kind of heart disease we're talking about here. Our spiritual ancestors saw fit to abandon God. And it's an indication of our capability to do the same. Passages like 1 Corinthians 10 and Hebrew 3, which we read during our reading of the law, look back at the most infinite infamous incidents of mass infidelity on Israel's part. So the golden calf in Exodus 32 and the failure to enter the land in Numbers 13 and 14. And they tie them to New Testament believers. And that should convince us how spiritually connected we are to the worst impulses in Israel. We read Hebrews 3, 7 through, 11, 7 through 11, which is a quotation of Psalm 95. What we didn't read was the writer's commentary on that, which is Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. 
the writer of Hebrews is going to go on to warn further in chapter 6 about those who have left the faith while once apparently having been earnestly a part of it. The writer gives no hope for such individuals and uses that occasion to exhort those who are still of the faith. We desire to show each one of you the same earnestness and to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. These things are for our instruction, my friends. And it's greater diligence in the pursuit of holiness that we should draw from these passages and draw motivation to engage in greater diligence. As God was found as a fountain of living water to Israel, Jesus is all the more to those who believe. Consider what he says in John 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, we have that Spirit as Jesus has now been glorified. We have all the spiritual resources we need, but we have to be diligent in our application of them. As most of you know, the first question of our shorter catechism is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer, which I presume you also know, is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. How are you doing in that pursuit? Is this morning your sole spiritual input for the week, or are you daily seeking to know God and live more fully to His glory? Do you get enjoyment as you're exposed to the things of God and learn more of Him? If not, pray that He would, through His Spirit, give you such enjoyment that the Word of God would become a joy to you, that the fellowship of the people of God would become sweet to you, that the hope of heaven would occupy your thoughts and capture your imagination. Those are things I pray for myself as well. We have Christ, the fulfillment of all God's promises, to trade even a small part of Him for anything else would reproduce this error of Israel. So may God continue to work faith in each one of us until we see him face to face. Let us pray. Lord God, help us to understand all the better our own vulnerabilities. Help us to take heed lest we fall not becoming prideful in standing. Help us to run after you and the things that please you with great, with great diligence and with great passion. Would you work this in us, making us more like our Savior until he should appear again. 
We ask these things in his name. Amen.